The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Transfusion. The word began as a description of pouring liquid from one vessel to another and was used in the 1570s to describe wine being decanted and intermingled. By the 1640s, the term was applied to blood taken from one body and put into another. By the Victorian age, as medical science advanced, the practice of transfusion had become part of the cultural lexicon and literary imagination. England may, with justice, claim to be the native land of transfusion, wrote one European physician in 1877, acknowledging Great Britain's role in developing and promoting human-to-human transfusion as a treatment for life-threatening blood loss. But what did this scientific practice mean for literature? How did it excite the imagination of authors? And what did any of it mean for readers? And how does our understanding of transfusion help us to understand our own reading of historical and contemporary scientific advancements? Today's guest, Professor Anne Kibbe of Bowdoin College, is an expert on transfusion. Her new book, Transfusion, Blood and Sympathy in the 19th Century Literary Imagination, examines the medical discourse that surrounded the real 19th century practice of transfusion, which focused on women suffering from uterine hemorrhage, alongside literary works that exploited the operation's sentimental, satirical, sensational, and gothic potential. We'll talk about all of this with Professor Kibbe, including the way transfusion seeped into the works of authors like George Eliot, Adam Smith, and, of course, Bram Stoker, whose work Dracula stands as a kind of culmination of the practice of transfusion and the elemental feelings it arouses in us all. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Transfusion. What a sensational idea. 
I love books like this and ideas like this where you think you know all about something and then a new angle comes along and suddenly you have a lot more to think about. In this case, I'm talking about Dracula. Here we are in October, my favorite month. A good time for Dracula, I think. We've talked about him before. If you recall, our friend of the show, Jim Shepard, was here to talk about Dracula, Lolita, and the power of volcanoes way back in episode 96. And as I mentioned to our guest today, I've had a kind of English majory take on Dracula. We are invited to perceive Dracula in the context of sex with all the thrills and perils that that involves. The essay practically writes itself. And what Professor Kibbe points out is that, no, there's another context here. Don't sleep on this other context. And can I just say that I know there are all kinds of puns to make, and I just don't make them, not because they don't occur to me, but because they seem a little lazy. I know when I say don't sleep on this other context, the NPR way of handling the phrase would be to add, even if you're nocturnal, because we're talking about Dracula. And when we talk about blood, as I did in the introduction, I know that you can say things like dripping and opening a vein and and wound and heart pumping and oozing and all kinds of clever words. But this is just my thing. It's a bit of fingernails on the chalkboard for me. I eschew the overly clever. I find it distracting. I find it a little too much about the author. There's a big wink between the speaker and the listener, and it just seems lazy to me. The worst is in advice columns. Go read an advice column sometime where the reader has written in a question about sex and watch the author of the advice column, the advice columnist, fall all over himself or herself making every possible sex-related pun. Wink, wink, wink. It drives me absolutely crazy. I had this idea that I would write a letter asking for advice and say, Dear advice columnist, I don't know what to do. I have this problem in my sex life. But everyone I ask for advice makes so many puns about sex, I can't take them seriously. What would happen? I'm sure they would just plow forward, punning away, punning themselves right into my trap. Then punning merrily as they ignore the trap and keep punning all the way to the edge of the cliff. That's the Pied Piper, people. Today's Pied Piper doesn't play a musical instrument, and he doesn't steal the children. He makes puns, and he seduces the adults, whom he stupefies into childlike grunts and nods and half-smiles. Aren't we all clever, they think, as they go sailing off the cliff? Yeah. The Pied Punner. I don't know where that came from. Let's get back to our main topic today, transfusion. But first, let's take a moment to thank our new patrons who signed up for a monthly contribution to literature in the History of Literature podcast at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash literature. This week, we're thanking new patrons Bruce, Elizabeth, Patricia, Mathis, Joan, Byron, (laughs) Kate, and Rania. Many thanks to all of you and to all of our generous supporters. We literally would not be doing this show without you. And by we, I mean I, Jack Wilson. If you'd like to sign up to help us out, join our little Patreon party, anywhere from one to two to five to ten dollars a month, whatever you'd like, really. 
you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature. I'm hoping to do more for the Patreon soon. What would you like? Bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, a newsletter, a forum? Let me know. And while we're on the topic of ideas, but hey, aren't we always on the topic of ideas? Is there any other topic? Can you think of a topic that isn't an idea? I myself can only think of four, maybe five. In any case, we're now about 10 episodes away from another milestone, episode 200. What should we do for episode 200? Maybe we finally let Mike Palindrome explain why The Magic Mountain is his favorite novel. That would be fun to hear. Or we do a greatest hits show with some listener feedback. Shoot me an email and tell me what episodes you'd like me to revisit and why. Maybe there was one in particular that resonated with you. That would be fun. Or maybe there's a particular guest you'd like me to invite on for a repeat visit. We're playing the hits, people. Let me know at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. On to transfusion and the consequences for Victorian readers. The very interesting talk I had with the expert, Professor Ann Kibbe. Coming up after this. Okay, joining me now is Professor Anne Kibbe of Bowdoin College. Professor Kibbe specializes in British literature of the long 18th century, including representations of money and capital in early modern literature, the 18th century novel, sentimentalism in the Gothic, and 18th century property law. She joins us today to talk about the intersection between literature and medical history in the 18th and 19th centuries, which she details in her forthcoming work, Transfusion, Blood and Sympathy in the 19th Century, literary imagination. Professor Kibbe, welcome to the History of Literature. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, so I want to build up to Dracula, which is really at the end of this period, 1897. And it's, of course, a myth and a, a legend and a, and a literary icon that's still very much with us today. But I want to build up to that because I think it sort of comes at the end of the story here. But I also want to start with it for a minute. So let me just tell you that as a where I come into this as a literature fan mm -hmm. and a former English major, I can put on my thinking cap and say, okay, if I'm going to analyze Dracula, I can see where this is headed. Vampirism is a uh, it's sort of a stand-in for sex, where the man finds his victims, he bites them on the neck, the mouth is involved, and the teeth and fluids are exchanged. There's an act of penetration, a climax of satisfaction. You can see how easy this is and how close the parallel. But what your work has suggested, to me at least, is a different kind of reading. Your work opened a different door and said, okay, there's sex there, fine, but let's not forget the importance of blood to the people reading mm -hmm. Dracula in 1897. Let's not 
forget the myths and beliefs that grew up around bloodletting, which was only a century or so before and was still kind of still in existence, at least the belief systems around it. And let's situate Dracula in a different landscape where blood transfusions were fairly new and becoming more common. And a whole set of narratives had grown up around these transfusions as a medical procedure, medical narratives and literary narratives or mm-hmm. or narratives in the popular imagination. So it seems like what we should be doing is taking a look at Dracula and other works in that context and seeing what we can learn. Is that kind of what your project is aiming for here? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Dracula is kind of the end stage. It's the final chapter of this work. It's actually where I began Mm -hmm. thinking about transfusion. Um, But then I'm trying to read backwards from Dracula and see how completely it is informed by this whole discourse um, of transfusion itself. And Bram Stoker um, he consulted with his, one of his brothers was actually a physician, and oh. he consulted with his brother about the medical details. So we know, yes, he really cared mm. about how accurately he was representing this practice. And so I wanted to go backwards in time and think about, first of all, were there blood transfusions? And then I discovered, well, yes, there were. And then what did they actually look like? And how did the people performing them talk about them? How did they introduce yeah. this medical innovation to the community? And then how did popular culture pick that up? And what did popular culture do with it? And right. Dracula is the culminating example. Yes. Right. Okay. So before we get to uh, transfusions, I think what's important to have kind of the prehistory here. So there was bloodletting mm-hmm. before that, which had its own, I mean, it's it's almost used as a joke now. I'm thinking of kind of a a Monty Python type world where it's yeah. the idea is, you know, you, you go in and, and suddenly there's the barber with the uh, the big knife ready to right. keep taking more and more blood. But what were the, I mean, was bloodletting a, uh, was it viewed as a physical procedure or a spiritual procedure? What were they hoping, what did they believe about mm-hmm. blood and what were they hoping to accomplish by removing blood from the diseased patient? Right, right. Well, it's really the most venerable um, surgical technique um, for all of Western medicine. Mm. Um, and it begins with the Galenic um, theory of the humors in the body, that mm. we're made up of these humors and they can get out of balance. And so your question about whether it's physical or spiritual is a really good one. It's it's both. Mm-hmm. It can be both. Um, so that you can have physical diseases because of an imbalance of the humors, or you can have mental diseases or psychological diseases um, because of that. And so bloodletting was this theory that evolved, you know, that if we remove blood from certain parts of the body, we might be able to treat certain kinds of illnesses or correct imbalances. Oh, but then, yeah. you know, and you mentioned it hangs on for a long time. It really hangs on for so much longer than we would have ever imagined. Um, it's, it's well into the 19th century. It preserves its status as really the primary mode of medical treatment. Um, yeah. It's only, only toward the mid-19th century that physicians really see that, that change in practice. Right. Um, because, but the, hum, the humoral theory has disappeared by then. You know, they're not operating on this Galenic idea of the, you know, the humors in the body, but they still have a kind of mechanic, an investment in the idea of the mechanical efficacy of removing blood. Um, so they're interested in plethora, the idea that you might have too much blood in your system and that it would be a relief to the system um, to right. remove some of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had thought originally, this is sort of making sense to me now, I had thought that the idea was, you know, that there was something diseased about the blood and, and getting rid of it would mm-hmm. would help. 
Uh, but what I didn't understand was the way it worked with the humors. I didn't realize they were thinking that they could remove blood from different parts of the body. So was it our new knowledge that the blood was a circulatory system that sort of helped lead to the fall in uh, bloodletting as a practice? No, that, that's, really, that's a really interesting question. And our sense of the, the circulation of the blood, I mean, it helps to give birth to the idea of transfusion, but it doesn't actually damage the idea of bloodletting itself for oh. a long time. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so there's, the, there are like two, it's as if they're able to hold two competing ideas of blood simultaneously. Yeah. One, that it's a really precious and vital fluid um, that we should try to husband and um, take care of. And the other, that it could be something that needs to be removed um, as a kind of waste product um, from the body. Um, mm. So it's um, the idea of the circulation um, it, that happens a lot earlier than the demise of bloodletting. And that gets at something that's a real mystery. I mean, medis- medical practitioners at the time and then scholars of the history of medicine both are completely puzzled by the demise of bloodletting in the 19th mm. century. So <laughs> practitioners, they're looking around them and they're saying, this is falling out of fashion. This, people are abandoning this. But it wasn't precipitated by any particular crisis. And yeah. there wasn't some, some big famous case that galvanized opinion against it. And people yeah. write about it as if it really did just kind of fall out of vogue, that it really was kind of, um, it had seen its day as a medical fashion and people were interested in other fashions. Well, do you I think they were, it just lacked the empirical evidence that people were saying, yeah, they, you know, my cousin, they kept withdrawing blood. He seemed to get worse. You know, he seemed to get weaker and weaker or it just finally the, uh, the anecdotes and the word of mouth maybe sort of caught up with what the, what physicians had believed. Right, right. And there is, there's this wonderful book um, by Marshall Hall, who's a 19th century physician, and he, he puts together in 1830 this book-length study of the efficacy of bloodletting. He asks himself, you know, how is this really working? And the whole first half of this book, he accumulates case history after case history after case history, and he describes the bloodletting procedure, and then he talks about the results. And the results are fainting, convulsions, coma, and sometimes sudden death. And he mm. just charts this over and over. The second half of the book is a defense of bloodletting, its <laughs> efficacy. <laughs> so you have, you, it's as if there's this, this the, the empirical right. part isn't speaking to the other part in right. some ways. Um, it, it's as if the empirical evidence really doesn't add up to the change itself. The change seems to be motivated by something else. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. Was blood transfusion as simple as basically the opposite of bloodletting and just saying, no, these people need more blood? Or was it a belief in the blood that was going into the body that was supposed to be uh, restorative and, and uh, have the positive effects? Or was it used for people who were known to have lost blood? Right. No, it, it is um, the idea that the beginning of blood transfusion in the late 17th century is not interested in the treatment of blood loss at all, Mm. that we're still in that Galenic world of the humors. Mm -hmm. And so it's more about um, correcting diseases that are thought to originate in the blood. And so there's this this theory that you might be able by by transfusing healthier blood or purer blood or blood that's free of disease into the human body, you could correct for chronic physical or mental diseases. Hmm. And so um, these experiments, it's important um, to highlight, these experiments are all using 
animal blood. So the mm-hmm. experiments begin in the late 17th century. They start with um, transfusion experiments from animal to animal. And then they quickly move to transfusion experiments, transfusing animal blood into human beings to correct um, diseases, and particularly mental diseases. Mm. Um, so the first in England, the first case of this is in 1667, and it's a man named Arthur Koga, and um, he suffers from some, we, you know, we can't interpret what these symptoms are now, but some vague mental illness, um, and they transfuse him with lamb's blood um, to try to cure that. And mm. they, have two th- they have two theories that they're operating according to, and one is, well, we eat animals, and that makes the blood in our bodies. The food makes blood in our bodies. Right. So transfusing blood is just the same as eating an animal. So what could be the harm in that? And then the second theory is, and animal blood is itself pure because animals don't suffer from any of the vices that human beings suffer from. <laughs> and so, they, yes, so they're not, they, don't, right. they don't have the same diseases. And so it is a kind of almost a purification. Now, uh, luckily, yeah. they're not. They're not transfusing so much blood. Um, you know, Arthur Koga survives his transfusion with yeah. lamb's blood yeah. um, and, and lives on. Um, but in France, um, later um, in the 17th century, uh, yes, the 17th century, um, there is a man who, who dies after um, having had a transfusion. He didn't die from the transfusion. He seems to have been poisoned by his wife. Um, it's a whole no. other story going on there. <laughs> um, but, it, but it gets a lot of bad press for transfusion. And so the French government bans all further human transfusion experiments. Hmm. And England follows suit just by suspending them informally. And then it doesn't revive until 1818 in Mm. England. So was the belief when they were doing the animal to human transfusions, was there a belief that you would take on the characteristics of the animal that a a lion's blood would would help you be ferocious or strong Mm. or an owl's blood i don't know that you know a fox's <laughs> blood would help you be clever or was there any mm-hmm. was there that that you'd take on the characteristics of the animal or was it just a uh, let's look for a source of blood that will help rebalance the blood that's in someone's system Right. It's, it's more just look for a source of blood that will help rebalance. But in, in more playful literary um, mm. ex, you know, explorations of this yeah. theme, you do see satires about this. Um, you know, so what if we infuse this man with sheep's blood? And so there's a, um, a play, um, The Virtuoso by Thomas Shadwell, and that's first performed in 1676. And it's a very wide ranging satire on scientific charlatanism. And the virtuoso claims to have transfused a man, a madman. Um, so he's definitely alluding to the Arthur Koga experiment, um, transfused him with lamb's blood. And then he talks about he cured the man. And then even more than that, the man kind of metamorphoses into a sheep and he grows wool and he mm. starts to bleat and he chews his cud. And, you know, so there are these right. definitely these satiric, um, you know, kind of explorations of yeah. um, how you might be affected by the by an animal transfusion. Right. But it's very uh, there is something innately uh i don't want to say commonsensical but there's something almost intuitive about it 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 does have mm-hmm. this i mean we're living in a world where you know how many tens of millions of people go to see a movie in which a spider bites a a, yeah. <laughs> a, a human and and the human takes on all kinds of characteristics of the spider and you right. know it it does seem to have a uh, maybe it's the the dream of humans, just like we might look at the stars and imagine ourselves traveling there one day. We might look at animals mm-hmm. and think, uh, what if I could fly like that bird? Or what if I could, mm-hmm. if, if I had a, a, 
a, a trunk like that elephant or whatever it is. Right. And the whole, you know, the whole interest in the idea of incorporation, you know, of what you can take into your body and make, make part of yourself. And you no, know, there are a lot of fantasies about that, the potential of it and then the horror of it, you know, of it going terribly wrong. Yeah. But it sounds like the physicians were not part of this. That was maybe running in the, in the right. literature, the popular imagination. Maybe in uh, uh, comedic stories or in, I'm guessing, fantasy or horror type stories. Mm -hmm. But the physicians were not operating under that uh, set of beliefs or or theories. They were trying to get something right and and trying to heal patients and uh, were sort of separate from the myth making. Yes, exactly. And that, that brings us to 1818 when James Blundell, who is the great pioneer in modern transfusion. He's an obstetrician at Guy's Hospital, and he has been performing experiments in transfusion with dogs. And he reads a paper um, to his medical society explaining his experiments and recommending that they be used for transfusions for human beings again. Mm. But he crucially, he makes two absolutely foundational shifts. One is no interspecies transfusion. He says mm. only, human, only human blood should be transfused into human patients. Yeah. And then he's also, now he's the one who's saying this is the treatment for traumatic blood loss. Mm. We're no longer talking about diseases, yeah. about mental diseases, physical diseases. Um, right now what we're talking about is um, blood loss. And the blood loss that he he, as an obstetrician, was most familiar with you know, women in childbirth right. or having miscarriages, um, bleeding to death from uterine hemorrhages. And, and he talks very movingly about how that inspired him in his transfusion work. He says, you know, I've seen women dying and bleeding to death for hours. I could, on- I could only watch them die. But we need to find a way to treat this. Was it his intuition that it would need to be uh, stay within the species or was he drawing upon some research or some findings that that was the way to to maintain safety? Yeah, he just he had done some interspecies experiments with animals and um, felt that they did not go well enough. Um, And then he also did, I think, have a just a disinclination um, to mixing blood um, of species in that way. Um, so he, he was relying on some experimentation, but also he, he says in a more flippant way later on in, in one of his works, he's also, you know, it's really hard to deal with animals, um, <laughs> you, know, yeah. like, you know, moving them around in rooms. <laughs> he says, well, a dog right. might come if you call, but a sheep is too big and unwieldy. <laughs> and so, so flippantly, he says, you know, humans are actually better, better at, um, being donors. Yeah. And and this is a really fascinating part of this story that I got from you uh, and from uh, reading the uh, introduction to your work. You know, we have such a, it's so embedded for us. It's so ingrained. So many people have given blood, but we have this, yes. the anonymity of the donor is mm-hmm. just a, a built-in feature, but that's not how it started out. And I think that led to a lot of the literature and, and, and things were following that, that it was almost a heroic act Mm-hmm. Uh, an act of sympathy. But before we get to the act of sympathy, which is, I think, uh, we'll have a lot to talk about. But I love this picture of the doctor putting himself in this heroic posture of, I'm going to save this patient, rolling up his sleeve and saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. give my blood to uh, to save this patient, which is now kind of the opposite of the medieval doctor and yes. uh, removing blood, but saying, not only will I be giving this patient blood, I'll be giving this patient my blood. Yes, then it, it kind of becomes this act of sympathy, and it sounds like that made its way into the literature pretty prominently, that people viewed it as 
almost a way of building a community or having kind of a coming together that we talk about. Uh, you can't understand someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes or something. But this this really seems to be you will understand people and people will understand one another once their blood is flowing through one another's veins. Is that is that an overstatement or is that what was we're seeing in the literature of this period? Oh, no, definitely. We can see this thread of um, a, a kind of a new, reified, sympathetic connection between people. And it's especially strong. And I mentioned that most of the patients are um, women suffering from uterine hemorrhage, and mm. most of the 19th century donors are their husbands. And so there are, there are a lot of different donors. Well, first of all, <laughs> um, you know, thinking about the anonymity and why there isn't anonymity um, at the time, they, there's no blood storage, mm. and blood is a very fragile fluid. Um, and yeah. so if, you, if you're going to transfer it from one body to another and you don't have storage and all of that, you really have to do it very, very quickly. So they would just take donors, conscript donors from you know whoever was around, bystanders, um, doctors would, as you mentioned, doctors would sometimes serve as donors, servants could serve as donors, neighbors, um, but mainly um, in these obstetric cases, the donor was the husband. And so there evolved this whole language of the the intensification of that matrimonial bond mm. you know, through this act of transfusion, you know, that yeah. you have actually, and one doctor even says, you know, this is like, you know, the, the, the realization of the idea of flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, yeah. um, you know, in, from the Old Testament. It's, it's kind of this reified version of that. Um, so there is all of this interest in the kind of sympathetic currents that flow from one body to another. And yeah. of course, the husband and wife are the, you know, the most intense version of that. But there is a sense that it creates other kinds of sympathetic bonds, like from servant to mistress, the servant saving the mistress, that that, that is a kind of an emotional bond there as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's funny because I think for men of my generation, there was this feeling of, well, I'm going to be part of this, part of the childbirth process in a way that my father wasn't. You know, he mm -hmm. was in the waiting room. He was, that was, mm -hmm. and and feeling sort of this, uh, almost a pride or just of a, a uh, an eagerness to be part of this experience and thinking mm -hmm. they must have felt that times 10 if the if the men were going in thinking that they would be donating blood and uh, mm -hmm. right there on the spot it's really uh, uh become sort of a a much stronger participatory event i i can only imagine how that must have changed the way people were thinking about childbirth Right, right. Well, you know, and I, I think that's also very true about modern childbirth and that, that connection, that wonderful um, sense of connection. Um, for these cases, this is the nightmare version because mm, right. these women are dying um, of hemorrhage. And so I read case history after case history. You read these accounts of the doctors walking into the room because they're called main. These are not happening in hospitals most of the time. They're happening in the bedchamber of the patient. The, the doctor is called into the room because the childbirth scene has gone terribly wrong. And these doctors, and these are in medical case histories, they will write about these rooms just covered in blood. They'll say they could hear the blood dripping through the mattress onto mm. the floor. Um, but they're really, the rooms they're walking into are more like crime scenes yeah. than they are 
like you know this this the idea of a childbirth scene and the children are often the um they're dead um and and they mm. they become they're described really just as a kind of medical waste and so it all turns to just saving the life of this woman who has almost been killed by mm. the act of childbirth and so it's this very intense scene of the husband now feeling that he's participating in a what should have been a happy story and it's turned into a tragedy. And there are really evocative descriptions of the husbands. And these again are in the medical accounts and they'll say, well, he wandered around. His face was as pale as ashes. Um, They'll say they they have trouble getting blood from, from husband donors because of the emotional state they're in. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very tragic and it's very, very gruesome. Boy, okay. Yeah. So let's. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. I can. I I was not picturing it that way. But when you describe it, mm-hmm. I could see. Uh, and it does make me want to look up. Well, who was the physician that you mentioned who describes this and um, advanced transfusions because of what he had seen in childbirth? Yeah, James Blundell. James um, Blundell. Yeah, B-L-U-N-D-E-L-L. And he writes he, he writes a, a lot about transfusion. And he's famously a very kind of hyperbolic rhetorician. So his prose is, is pretty over the top and really quite wonderful. Right. Okay, so let's turn to some literary works to see what our mm-hmm. uh, favorite authors of the period were up to yeah. and, and the ones who were taking up transfusion in different ways. And let's start mm-hmm. with, I think you pair up uh, in a chapter, William Godwin Jr. and the Great... George Eliot. So what yes. were their projects and what were they writing about? Mm-hmm. Well, William Godwin Jr., he's the son of the famous um, novelist and political philosopher, um, William Godwin, and he's the younger half-brother of Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes this book. It's published posthumously in 1835. He died at the age of 32 from cholera, very sadly. Um, but his father, William Godwin, ushered this work um, into print um, posthumously. And he writes a novel. The title is Transfusion, colon, The Orphans of Unwalden. So it's this kind of gothic, sentimental story um, about a brother and sister who are orphaned. Um, but then he folds into the whole final volume of this three-volume novel, what the title indicates, the scene of transfusion, but it's not blood transfusion, it's spiritual transfusion. Mm. This young, the the young protagonist, he's very much like Victor Frankenstein, he's become obsessed with learning this secret that no one else has learned, and he can exchange souls from one body to another. Mm. And he thinks that this is going to create a wonderful um, access to sympathy, that we'll sympathize with each other more. Well, he hasn't thought through the logic at all, because if you're just swapping souls, (laughs) you really, (laughs) it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> You're not learning anything. <laughs> but he doesn't realize that. And he, he does exchange souls with his beloved sister, and they both die. And he's trapped in her body. His soul is trapped in her body. So this very this kind of um, gothic anti-sympathy, or the, what I call the dead end of sympathy, that mm. you know, what is supposed to be this sympathetic connection instead becomes this dead end. And then I pair him with George Eliot, um, because George Eliot writes in um, 1859, she publishes um, this very odd story, The Lifted Veil. And the final episode of that story hinges on an actual blood transfusion. This physician um, comes to a household and performs a blood transfusion in order to reanimate a recently dead woman so that she can divulge this terrible secret that she's taken to the grave with her. So there is an actual act of transfusion. But again, like Godwin Jr., George Eliot is really 
essentially interested in the question or the problem of sympathy, because the protagonist of this story has the ability to read people's minds. Um, he can, he can um, you know, see into the feelings and the thoughts of the people around him. And, it's, and it is not a happy talent to have, <laughs> you know, that it ruins his life. He's miserable because of this. Um, and so I think, again, we have this kind of nightmare of sympathy. Um, and in, in George Eliot's story, it's that other, other people's thoughts and feelings might invade one's own consciousness against one's will. Um, mm. So again, I read, I read um, George Eliot as another um, kind of writer interested in that dead end of sympathy. Yeah, and you connect both of these to Adam Smith and his theory yes. of moral sentiment. So what's the mm -hmm. link there? In the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith has an odd description of sympathy itself. And he's talking about, well, what, what is sympathy? How do we experience it? And he ends up um, describing it as a kind of a projection or occupation of another person, projection of yourself into another person or occupation of another person. Mm. And again, I'm thinking of the, the Godwin Jr. story where you just put yourself in someone else's body. Well, right. what kind of version of sympathy is that? And I especially focus, he has this wonderful contemplation of how we have sympathy for the dead. And he points out that sympathy for the dead from the dead's perspective is completely meaningless. <laughs> they, don't, they don't need it from us. <laughs> They're right. beyond all of that. But he says that we, we, ha we experience this sympathy. He calls it lodging our own living souls in mm. their inanimate bodies. And so mm. I find that a very haunting image of sympathy and again, a very gothic image of sympathy so that you know, we're the ones haunting the dead or trying to haunt the dead. Yeah. Um, they're kind of over us. But, <laughs> but the sense that we lodge our souls or try to lodge our living souls in their inanimate bodies. Yeah. So is he concerned about the disrespect for the dead or he's just trying to analyze sort of the, the psychology and the meaning of it for those of us who uh, are, I guess, holding up a skull of poor Yorick and, uh, <laughs> and, and contemplating our, our mortality? Right. I, I think he is trying to get get at what what we try to how we try to have um, some kind of connection to the dead that we feel that we profit mm. from. You know, this mm -hmm. kind of this this sympathy that we can feel for them um, redounds to our own our own good. Right. Right. OK, so let's get I feel like we're closing in on on vampires. <laughs> um, I know yep. there are some other accounts you describe in between. Do you want to touch on those briefly before we get to our main course here? Oh, right. Well, I do want to just mention um, this one novel, Blood, A Tragic Tale, published in 1888, and it's by William Delisle Hay. Mm -hmm. And it it really, um, you know, people do not write about this book. I don't, I don't think many people have read it, um, but I just want to mention um, what a fabulous and fascinating novel it is. It's a very cheap novel, a sensation novel. It was reviewed um, in the popular press, and one reviewer called it the, the most disgusting novel of the year. So that's, <laughs> that's always good. But it, the story is the story of a blood transfusion, and what happens is the, this, this Frankenstein-like doctor who wants to experiment he has a male donor and a female recipient, and he hooks them up to each other, and then he loses consciousness for reasons that are unclear. When he comes to, all of the donor's blood has drained into the female recipient, displacing her consciousness entirely. So now this creature is a masculine consciousness, the consciousness mm. of the donor residing in this female body. And so, um, so her consciousness has been completely displaced. She's gone. 
Um, but this man is inhabiting her. And, and so it's just a fascinating um, discussion of identity. I mean, it, begin, it has really philosophical questions that it's interested in asking, even though it is this very sensational Gothic tale. It, it begins saying, who am I? How do I know I am who I think I am? What yeah. is me? Yeah, so it's this very kind of philosophical foray into the idea of transfusion. Yeah, I can tell you, I had the... I had this experience in college where I was earning money doing different experiments. Oh, really? You know, where I would, I, I don't know, it was I'd be paid $20 or something, and I would go in and eat breakfast cereals and answer survey <laughs> questions and, and that kind of thing. And there was one, and someone, you know, there was a a posting for it or something, and it was... I think it was you would make a couple thousand dollars and you mm-hmm. were it it took a whole weekend. And what they said oh. it was was you would go into this hospital and uh, I guess it was a hospital and they were working on a synthetic blood and they oh. were going to cycle all of the blood out of your body and replace it with synthetic blood and then cycle all the all the all of your blood back into mm. your body. And they said, you know, there would be a point where all you had in your body was synthetic blood. And oh I was completely freaked out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even though even though yeah. I I wanted to want it. First of all, it sounded like the kind of thing that could go really wrong. But also, mm-hmm. I think there was something that I was I was worried that I would lose something about myself that there was Mm -hmm. uh you know if all my blood was sitting uh in a tank next to my bed i would not be myself uh Mm -hmm. for that amount of time and and uh i guess that's sort of superstitious in a way or you know but it it seems like a real feeling to me (laughs) oh yes no i i understand that completely I, i do think that we really, if if we were pressed, we would all say that we feel that there is some aspect of our identity that resides in our blood. I mean, as you say, maybe a superstition, but I think it's one that, that many of us share, that we, we couldn't get past that idea, yeah. that something about who we are actually resides in our blood. Right. Okay. So let's move to vampires. Uh, mm-hmm. So how does all of the stuff that we've talked about, how does it feed into... Bram Stoker's 1897 novel. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I'd like to just mention um, one work that comes right before them, because I think that it, it, it makes a good foil for mm. Dracula. Yeah. And that is Mary, Mary Elizabeth Braddon's <laughs> Good Lady Jutane. Um, yeah. And it's published and the year before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she was kind of eager to note that for Mr. Stoker. That, uh, That's right. That she came yes. first. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She sends him a note congratulating him on his great hit of Dracula and met, says, oh, you outdid my own little story of transfusion. <laughs> Which <laughs> then, came yeah, first. So that, yes, that's right. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but in Good Lady Duquesne, um, what we have is not a supernatural vampire, you know, like Dracula, but we have what I call a surgical vampire, which is um, a physician who is chloroforming young women and um, taking their blood and then transfusing it into the veins of his very ancient patient benefactress. Um, so he's trying to prolong her life um, through this kind of surgical intervention. So it has the, you know, the kind of impulse of 
the vampire to, you know, to gain immortality in some way. Um, but it's, it's accomplished through surgery, not through any kind of super, supernatural power. Mm. And then, of course, when we move to Dracula, what we get is, you know, this, this supernatural vampire um, who, who preys on the living in order to prolong his own undead um, selfhood. Um, but I'm, I'm not as interested in Dracula himself, the character of Dracula. I'm more focused on um, his victim, um, the first one of his victims in England, Lucy Westenra, mm-hmm. um, because Lucy, Lucy receives four blood transfusions um, over the course of her victimization mm. um, as, as physicians try to rescue her um, from, from Dracula's predations. They know she's losing blood. They are not sure why, um, but they keep giving her these transfusions to try to treat that. And my reading of Lucy really places her case and she is a case history, and her, the physicians in the novel are writing about her as a case history, her case history alongside the real case histories of these obstetric patients um, mm. that the real medical pract- practitioners are writing about. And, you know, her case and these obstetric cases, they follow the same kind of narrative. You know, the only difference is she's she doesn't seem to be pregnant or to be giving birth. Um, you know, she's, she's caught up in this other kind of vampire transformation. Um, but I see in that this kind of this subterranean uh, allusion to um, the obstetric context of transfusion itself um, and see her as involved in the kind of vampiric pregnancy um, that the physicians then have to, have to um, put a halt to. Ah, so what do you mean by vampiric pregnancy? The way it's one of the mysteries of vampire novels. Vampire novels have to deal with this: like how do vampires actually reproduce themselves? Oh, I see. Right. Yep. Yeah. And so you know, so with Dracula, we can see: oh, you know, you have to die. You you are um, preyed upon by a vampire, and then you you die from that um, from those attacks, and then you become the undead. And I'm thinking of the transfusion scenes in Dracula as offering a different kind of kind of surgical potential for vampire reproduction right. um, in which the, the doctors unknowingly are conspiring in this kind of new form of vampire reproduction that Lucy, Lucy is kind of a test case for that in a way. Um, but then, of course, they, they do destroy her. And so that's the end of that model of vampire reproduction. That's so interesting. What do you think was going through Stoker's mind when he did that? What does it serve a uh... A function for the plot or do you think he's trying to say is it a commentary on on the state of modern medicine or was he just so animated by the idea of transfusions and it fit in with you know he just saw it as a, a natural accompaniment to his vampire story how did this get in there yeah and and maybe mary elizabeth braddon would say he got that idea from me because I have this transfusionist (laughs) working over there in my story. And then of course, again, his brother is, um, is a physician and so has that kind of medical connection. And he, you know, Stoker was a great researcher. Uh, He did like to research all sorts of things and Mm. um, you can, you can see his notes for Dracula. Um, And so I think it was part of it was just a kind of a fascination with where research could lead him, you know, in this kind of medical Avenue. Yeah. Okay, so where do you think this leaves us today? Right. I mean, we think of transfusion differently. Uh, Do you see that playing out in literature, or is transfusion basically such an accepted and well-known part of society that it's almost disappeared in the way that you're talking about in the period that Mm -hmm. that you looked at? Or Mm -hmm. what should we make of transfusion in the 21st century? Right, right. 
that's a really great question and, and one that's way beyond me in terms of being able to, <laughs> to really answer that. But I would, I would just take a stab in this way and say, um, uh, turning to the question of tissue donation or organ donation, mm. um, you know, there, there are similar kinds of anxieties about selfhood involved in tissue um, and specifically organ donation. Yeah. Um, you know, the, this kind of mulling over the anxieties about what of the self might be transmitted or mm-hmm. what of the self might be lost. And I'd like to say that everyone should read this fabulous book by Catherine Waldby and Robert Mitchell. It's called Tissue Economies, Blood, Organs, and Cell Lines in Late Capitalism. Mm. So they have this whole, they have a wonderful um, elaboration of this idea of a tissue economy. But again, in thinking about the, the change from the 19th century to the 20th and the 21st century, the 19th century world is is so different and it ends because anonymity replaces the model of intimacy in mm-hmm. these donations. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that that's, the, that's a really crucial breaking point, um, yeah. you know, that once we have the presumption of anonymity, this whole kind of sentimental, um, affective, intimate um, scene of transfusion disappears and it's replaced by the clinical and by, you know, the a sense that anonymity is not just a kind of a feature of modern um, donation, but that it's actually a requirement of modern donation, that there's something really essential about mutual anonymity rather than this kind of intimate knowledge of the other. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the lack of anonymity really makes blood transfusion in the 19th century, you know, the, a sentimental tissue economy. And then that is severed. Absolutely. Yeah. I am going to, uh, break the anonymity and, and and tell you this story that I heard, which I think oh. will make it clear that even though we have moved away from this, the idea mm-hmm. would still very much hold and we could be right back in the 19th century in, a, in an mm-hmm. instance like this. I actually, I, <laughs> I have a, a frequent guest on this show, uh, Mike Palindrome, and he told me this story. I think he wrote it, although... Mm. Uh, I, I'm not positive, so I'm going to give him credit for it. Although he may have been describing a story that he read, so if he, mm-hmm. <laughs> if it, it's if someone else should be credited, my apologies in advance. But it, it was a fascinating idea. It was a man was in love with this woman, and she died in a car crash, and she was an organ donor, and she donated her eyes. And he mm-hmm. had always been in love, you know, especially with her eyes, as most people mm-hmm. who are in love with someone else are. And so mm-hmm. he becomes obsessed with the idea of he misses her so much. He becomes obsessed with the idea of tracking down the person who received her eyes so that mm. he could go and, and gaze into her eyes once again. And uh, I mean, the eyes, like, I don't think this would work if it was a kidney or a you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, some other some other kind of organ. But the eyes are so connected for us with, you know, mm-hmm. the windows into the soul. And you can imagine a person, I think, um, actually believing in this and wanting to do it. But it also is so horrifying. It's so much against our idea of anonymity. And you could imagine what it would be like to be stalked by this man who wants you to be, you know, if you were the recipient and being stalked by this man who wants you to be someone you're not. And you can imagine his horror when he realizes, you know, he has to come to grips with the idea that his wife is truly gone and that her eyes are, are not, you know, he can't recreate her this way or something, but it seems like 
I didn't think about the way this story, all these nerve endings that it touched with me, but it seems like what it's doing is kind of taking me out of the 21st century and moving me back to the 19th century where yeah. um where that was and and maybe that kind of thing was exactly why they moved away from the the sentiment and into the anonymity of donation. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right and that it is you know now there the the protocols are so strict about being able to um find the identity of an organ donor or something like you know that you can yeah. communicate but only through through um a, a kind of mediated method um you know there is a sense that you really it's not just that well it, you know do you really want to know but that you absolutely shouldn't know you know that you need to be prevented from knowing that yeah and is the idea there that that you would feel too obligated or you would um you know that that someone could sort of hold it over you that their the organ donation saved your life or what exactly is the <laughs> What's behind the strict prohibition? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure. All the, you know, all of the underlying theories of that, you know, that that sustain those protocols. But there is um, Richard Titmus um, wrote this really foundational work about donation in the 20th century, and he is so committed to the idea that it has to be a pure gift. That it's a that we're mm. operating on a gift economy, yeah. um, and the anonymity only intensifies the nature of the gift itself. So that yes, you're, you you allude to kind of um, senses of ab- obligation or debt or something like that, and that anonymity really prevents that kind of um, relationship from from evolving. Instead, you know, it's it's an anonymous gift. Um, you could never pay it back. No one needs to have it paid back. Um, it's just this pure generosity. Yeah. And of course, he's not, he's talking about, you know, the, the free gift. He's not talking about being paid for blood or anything like that. You know, he's, right. he's counting on on a pure donation. Yeah. And it, one of the things about keeping it as a donation model is it it maybe helps to to keep that more solid line between organ harvesting and, mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. sacrificing their sacrificing their organs so that their kids will have a better life. Mm hmm. Or in the worst cases, you know, taking organs from prisoners or slaves mm-hmm. or raising mm-hmm. people. I mean, the you can imagine the the nightmare dystopic visions that you might have of humans being raised to be harvested, basically. Right. And we also have cloning is another issue like that, that we're sort of we're very uneasy about. We have this technology that could lead us down this path, but we we have to look for issues like transfusion to kind of help us uh, set some parameters around what's acceptable and what's not. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think that's right. And the, uh, when you were mentioning harvesting, I was also thinking again back to good lady Duquesne. I mean, she keeps these ladies companions. She hires them. And, um, you know, what she's really hiring them for, they don't know this, is, you know, to harvest their blood um, and, you know, have it injected into her veins. Um, and, you know, obviously there's no consent, no gift there. Um, they are unwitting. They're chloroformed. And then they weaken mysteriously and die. Um, but they're, you know, she's just using them as, you know, as if they were vampire victims. Um, but again, it's that surgical vampirism that enables that. Yeah. Let's end on a happier note. Yes. Did you hear about this man in Australia who had donated blood for 60 years? No. Ah, no. okay. I am pulling up an article now so I can give you some highlights from it. There is a man, uh, he had a nickname. He was called the man with the golden arm. Mm. He was 81 and he had donated blood for 60 years, more than 1,100 times. 
and he had this really rare antibody in his blood. Oh. And oh. they would give his uh, blood to babies, and they estimated that he saved the lives of more than 2 million babies. Oh, my. Gosh, that's his... just astonishing, <laughs> isn't it? That is that is just wonderful. And that he, is a wonderful story. He finally retired, and you know they were worried about his his health at age eighty one. That he was he was past the age limit for blood donors, and Ooh. they wanted him to protect his health. But could you imagine knowing? I mean, very. I mean, most of us would be proud. It would be one of the proudest things you could point to if you saved the life of one person. But right, he, right. the idea that he saved two million babies by donating mm-hmm. this special blood is uh, its just a wonderful story. So transfusions. That is. That is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and much, much happier than the stories I've been dealing with, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> and hopefully, you know, maybe that will be... Um, Made into a movie, kind of, uh, you could imagine it making its way into literature or into a, mm-hmm. a film where the, the two million babies grow up and, uh, and and do something, gather or something, and do something special yeah. for uh... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's leave things there. Professor Kibbe, thank you very much for joining me on the History of Literature. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? My thanks to Professor Ann Kibbe for joining me. You can get her book, Transfusion, Blood and Sympathy in the 19th Century Literary Imagination, at bookstores near you. It's October, people. There are problems all over the world, but we can fight back. We can do our best. I hope you feel some cause for optimism these days, wherever you live and whoever you are. We can't do everything, but we can all do our best. And we can all hope. I'm Jack Wilson, hopeless and hopeful, which I'll probably be until the day I die. The eternally optimistic loser. (laughs) What can I say? I'm the cross I bear. At least I have my own blood. And I have you, dear listeners. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.